Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question, while providing real solutions from a biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Charles Roberts and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Welcome again to the Out of the Question podcast. I am Andrea Schwartz, and I am joined by my co-host, Charles Roberts. Hello, Andrea. Today we have a very interesting question. I think all of our questions are interesting, but uh, this is one that uh, I think is especially relevant in our day and time, and it's a question that may be on some people's minds, and that is, is being polite a biblical concept? Now, I think behind that question is a much more significant one, a deeper one, and that is, what does God's Word teach us about how we are to interact with each other? So what do you think, Andrea? Is uh, politeness just something from a bygone age? Is there any biblical connection to it? What are your thoughts on that? Well, like everything else, terms need to be defined. But if we're going to start with Scripture, which we both like to do, if you take a look at the second great commandment that Jesus says is operative for the believer and for everyone, for that matter, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And then, of course, the Ten Commandments are the means by which we understand our responsibility to God and to others. And where we get our understanding of our responsibility to others is normally looked at in the second table of the law. So if we're going to treat each other lawfully, we won't murder, we won't destroy their family, we won't slander them, we won't steal from them, we won't covet what they have. But the Fifth Commandment, which is to honor your father and your mother, is the true basis on which we learn how to deal with each other because it's in the context of God placing authority in the hands of parents. And so if we're going to look at politeness, manners, or any of these other ways of describing what you're referencing, we need to look at it from a biblical point of view to set the boundaries for what should be included and what should be excluded. And that is a very important connection. Certainly there can be conventional rules of deportment, if I can put it that way, of manner and politeness, social graces that may not be directly connected, whatever, to God's law. However, in the long run and in the bigger picture, as you have just indicated, the way that we interact with each other must be governed by God's law or it will be governed by some other law. And at least in Western cultures, especially in the Christian culture as it existed in all of its faults in these United States up until the past 50 years or so in some form, those types of things were very largely based on that. You know, if uh, you were a young person, say 10 or 12 year old boy or girl, you were taught that you should not talk back either to your parents or anyone else's. And uh, to do so would be both impolite, and it would also be an occasion for you perhaps to have a meeting with your parents, your father, your mother, who would discipline you for having done that. But the whole idea, though, is that we should obey what God tells us to do in terms of how we interact with each other, that table of the law that you referred to. And let me just share a few other scripture passages out of which we can further elaborate this issue In Romans 12.10, Paul says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Outdo yourselves in honoring one another. What does that look like? Well, it looks like in everyday 
behavior, how we show politeness and good manners to each other in various occasions. In Romans thirteen seven, Paul says, pay everyone what you owe him, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. So all of these things, these passages are connected to this issue of God's law and how those things are applied uh, in regular society and interactions with each other, whether it's in the family, in the church, or out in society. But I think we have to be careful because politeness, like so many other things, has taken on a meaning which oftentimes includes hypocrisy or not telling the absolute truth. And so, for example, if somebody comes up to me and says, or let's say they I'm at their house and they have given me something to eat, and they say, oh, do you like it? Now, if I don't like it, might it be impolite to say, no, I don't like it? Somebody says, that's very rude. You should be polite. You should say, I like it. But if you don't like it and you get into the habit of, quote, unquote, being polite, are you not ingraining in yourself that the main goal is to not be offensive at the price of the truth? A classic example of that very thing comes from the cultural environment in which I grew up here in the southern United States, where at least, whether or rightly or wrongly, there has been a tradition of politeness and uh, courtesy cultivated you know, among the upper classes, but even among regular people, so-called. The South had that sort of tradition, but some of it was largely what you have just referred to, not specifically about the southern United States, but the example of it is uh, I'm reminded of a case of a famous Southern comedian who back in the early 60s would tell stories about his experiences in the South. And uh, he was contrasting in one of his stories about this issue between the politeness of Southerners versus the brusqueness of the, the Yankee, the Northeasterner. And he used the example of a door-to-door salesman, which was common back then. He said, you know, the, the salesman goes to the door of somebody living up north and Guy knocks on the door before he even says anything about what he's selling. person opens the door and says, we know what two you are. We don't want anything you're selling us. Slams the door in his face. He said, now, by contrast, he said, here in the South, now, we don't buy from him either, but we're so much more gracious about it. Guy comes to the door. He knocks on the door, and he says, thank you so much for coming to my house. What can I do for you? And he said, the guy launches into this 15-minute spiel about what he's selling, And the southern gentleman says, oh, that is marvelous. That is such a great piece of equipment. You know, I think my neighbor next door might buy it. (laughs) See, I mean, that's the whole point. Rather than say what the other person said, which was really what was in his heart, he goes through this whole thing. I want to give another example because I think it's so uh, interesting, and it's one that our our great friend and mentor, R.J. Rushdooney, told about. It had to do with an occasion. This is actually one of his books about President Theodore Roosevelt, who was hosting some friends in Washington, D.C., and he liked to take his friends out for a hike around the Potomac River, and uh, Washington was a much smaller place than it is now, and he was uh, hiking with a bunch of other men, uh, some of them diplomats or dignitaries or whatever, and they all decided to go, I guess what we'd call today, skinny dipping in the river. Dr. Rustuni reports that all of the men had stripped down and dove into the river, and were swimming in the nude. President Roosevelt happened to notice, however, that one of the men, who happened to be the ambassador from France, the French ambassador, had removed every article of his clothing except his gloves. And Roosevelt said, Mr. Ambassador, 
have you not forgotten your gloves? To which the debonair Frenchman replied, oh, but we might meet ladies. <laughs> so, I mean, they, these are examples of, of, of politeness, as you said, that may have something, uh, a motive behind them, something other than a solid biblical grounding. And we have words for it, like decorum or the proper behavior. If you're going to be taught how to conduct yourself at a woman's tea if you're a woman or how, if you're going to a formal dinner, which fork to use. Now, I'm not saying that none of that is important, but when you have the form and you have lost the substance, then you have many things in culture that really most people do, but they don't know why they do it. So, for example... I said the fifth commandment talks about honoring parents. That's where we get the idea that when you're a young person and you are introduced to an older person and that person's not a member of your family, it's Miss So-and-so, Mr. So-and-so, Mrs. So-and-so, because you're showing respect and deference to age because that would be a natural outworking of honoring your parents. And if you honor your parents, of course, then you will honor God because they are your first teachers and representatives. But today, I can go places and meet people who haven't been taught that way, and they'll say to their five-year-old, hi, say hi to Andrea. This is Andrea. And having a little five-year-old go, hi, Andrea, (laughs) as if we're equal. Now, we are equal in as much as that we are sinners in need of redemption, But if there's no advantage to being older in a culture, then what we see today is that we have adults trying their hardest to look like kids. And so they dress like kids, and the women and the men will color their hair. So good heavens, we will not have our gray hair show. And I've seen women, and again, I'm in California, and I don't know if this is universal, who will walk around with the new style of the torn jeans, which I know, based on everything else about them, they're spent a lot of money to get that torn look, and they look like they're about 14 or 15 years old in terms of their style. So they're really not trying to evoke this idea that I'm someone older and wiser, and I'm going to be an advisor potentially for you. Oh, no, quite the contrary. It's all about we've got to be equal. And so even the normal thing that says if somebody, you're meeting them for the first time, don't presume you will be on a first-name basis because that's what the whole concept of being on a first-name basis means. It means that there's a familiarity which in times past was granted. You may call me Andrea as opposed to calling me Mrs. Schwartz. Uh, That is a very important one. And again, to be regional, if I may, once more, and I don't know, let me back up. I don't know that this is a regional thing because I, I, when I lived in, in upstate New York for almost 20 years, I think I heard people say the same thing, that I was raised anytime I spoke to an adult who was clearly older than me, an adult and not someone roughly my, in my peer group, I always addressed them as yes, sir, yes, ma'am, no, sir, no, ma'am. And I still find myself falling into this if I'm talking to an elderly person who uh, is, say, maybe somebody in their 80s nowadays but and you certainly didn't call people by their first name that was it's not just a question of politeness there although it is it's an issue of respect and the way that we honor our parents as you said now i want to go back to your reference to the the rules of eating and using this fork or that fork and and that's a good example because you know in some cultures they eat with chopsticks 
In some cultures, I think in the Middle East, even today, if you go to some place that's not heavily touristed, they eat with their hands. I think in some uh, Arab villages and, and places like that. So uh, these things, uh, it's not people being impolite. It's just this is the convention. Now, where the issue of politeness and honor and respect comes in is, say, who is supposed to eat first or who gets the priority? Is it the, the patriarch of the family? Is it the, what, whatever the case may be? I remember when I was in seminary in Philadelphia, uh, there were a number of international students who attended Westminster Theological Seminary, and there was one fellow in particular from a Middle Eastern country. I won't say what it is. It doesn't really matter. But we were having a sort of a little buffet sandwich lunch in one of the, the buildings that we didn't normally have food in, but there was some special thing going on. So people were kind of lined up, and I noticed this guy was sort of uh, shoving his way in. You know, he was getting in front of people, and and a few people would look at him with kind of raised eyebrows, and he didn't seem to be concerned whatsoever. And it certainly dawned on me, even as I was getting a little upset. Well, in his culture, that's kind of what you do, <laughs> you know. Um, that, that's, that's not considered to be a sign of uh, impoliteness. Um, and I don't know if that's a case of God's law not having penetrated enough into that culture, or if this is just one of those things that you just have to make an allowance for and say, well, that's the way they do it there. Well, you brought up the term culture, and this is where, if we're going to define what makes a culture, it has to do with the underlying religious beliefs, their world and life view. And so I think it was Henry Van Til who coined the phrase that culture is religion externalized. So whether you eat with your hands or you eat with utensils, whether you eat on the floor or you eat at a table, we may not know why those things are in place now, but they came from a certain perspective. So if we're going to look at what is polite, we need to understand the culture that we're evaluating. A funny story about um, a woman who I knew from homeschooling circles, and her daughter once saw her shaving under her arms. And she said, why do you do that, mom? And mom said, I'm just trying to be polite. Now, that was a terrible answer. And the mother realized it later on because one time they were out in the summer and there was a woman who had a sleeveless top on who hadn't shaved under her arms. And the little girl said, Mom, look at that impolite woman. <laughs> of course, the mother was very embarrassed but she gave the answer that really wasn't the correct answer. So as we're explaining why we say Mr. and Mrs. or why we wait and have everybody seated at the table before we start to eat or why we don't push to the head of the line, this is where the religious beliefs of people will be shown. And so from a biblical world and life view, we need to examine everything we do and make sure that our outward manners are reflective of what we truly believe. If I may be allowed another reference to uh, Dr. Rushduni, he made this comment in an article that I will refer to later as we recommend readings. He says this, manners can become absurd and can be overly stressed, but they do serve to keep people from manifesting their uglier feelings and dispositions and civilization needs that restraint. And I thought that was a very wise insight because it shows that 
one reason for politeness and manners is not simply silly conventions or silly habits that have grown up for whatever reason, uh, but th- these are ways that these are ways that we are able to live in community with each other and respect each other's boundaries and. They are simply things, whether they have grown out of God's law, which are, as we've said, the basis of it, uh, or have been extrapolations from that and down, further down the line that have been found to be a way that people can live in harmony with each other and respect each other's boundaries. And I have to say, I, you know, we're in, inevitably headed to this part of the discussion that our culture today, there's that word again, is certainly characterized, I think, by anyone who has had any understanding of the importance of manners and politeness. Our culture today is one that has become increasingly devoid of these important ways of showing restraint and showing politeness to each other. And there's even a view that I think would be very much in line with what Dr. Rushdini was talking about. You may not agree with a convention, but if you know that saying something or doing something is going to cause an offense to others and you don't have to do it, then you shouldn't. And a good example of that from scripture is when Paul is advising people about foods sacrificed to idols. Now, Paul didn't think that if you ate some meat that had been sacrificed to idols, that that disqualified you from being in the family of God. But I believe he did understand that some people who had been converted out of a situation like that might find it difficult to come to that understanding immediately because that person would associate the current practice with something that he used to do as part of his faith. So Paul is basically saying, respect the fact that he's a weaker brother and show good manners. Be polite. Don't don't make it so that you put a stumbling block in front of him. Paul's not saying, and as a result, never go to that market and buy food, but he's saying treat other people the way you would want to be treated, and then the two verses you pointed out in Romans, if it comes to honoring yourself or honor someone else, honor someone else, especially if it doesn't cause you to disobey another law of God. Yeah, Paul speaks to that very issue in his letter to the church at Philippi, Philippians 2.3, where he says, don't be selfish, don't try to impress others, be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Do nothing from selfish ambition, count others more significant than yourselves. You know, that is, is one of the foundations of politeness. Uh, so that's another example of how it is God's law, his word, that has been the basis for how these things have grown up in Christian cultures. Again, as you well pointed out, quoting you know Van Til's reference in um, in his book on Calvinism and culture, in those societies that have been thoroughly uh, or more heavily influenced by biblical law, we find these kind of things, and those cultures where it has not, uh, we find other types of conventions or rules or manners. But what I think is highly significant, and what's very interesting to me, is that it has been the case. And there may be different arguments about why this has happened, but it has been largely the case that some form, however corrupted, but it is some form of biblical manner and politeness that has tended to dominate across the face of the globe. And I don't mean in obscure places, but in what we'll call civilized nations, we find the Western habits 
with their roots, whether it's realized or not, in biblical law, have tended to predominate. And I've, I've been very interested to notice this, especially for folks like you and me, where we come out of the uh, spiritual malaise of the 60s, where there were so many people interested in Eastern religions, particularly religions from India, where people have attempted to adopt the theology if the, and the practices of the meditation, all the rest of it. But it's interesting to contrast that with everyday life in India, where you can see uh, a very different perspective and picture on how people live their day-to-day lives and how they interact with each other. And it has grown all of it out of their worldview and their perspective. So that tells us that as we are living out Christ's mandate in the Great Commission, we have to at least attempt to understand the cultures that we're dealing with. I remember a really embarrassing situation early on in my marriage before we had kids. My husband was selling cars and he had sold a car to a Japanese man who was in the U.S. studying business so that he could take over his father's Chinese restaurants in Japan, which was kind of an interesting combination. So being the Yankee American that I am, he comes to our house and he sits down and I decide I'm going to have a topical conversation. And his name was Suishi. And I said, Suishi, so tell me, how do you learn about Pearl Harbor when you were growing up? <laughs> Immediately, he got up, bowed, and said, I, will, I am sorry for dishonoring you, and I will leave. And being as stupid as I was at the time, I'm like, wait, 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 no, no, no. I was trying to make very informed conversations. Well, I had insulted the man. Well, thankfully, my husband got him back, and I did my best to point out that, please just forgive me. Pretend I didn't say that. I'm so stupid, you know. Well, of course, there's going to be a different orientation to how something like that is taught. But I certainly wasn't respecting or even demonstrating any knowledge that this would put him in a very weird situation. I was just being honest and forthright because, you see, that's what good people do. They're honest and forthright. Well, and certainly in that case, I I take it from the way you've described that you maybe didn't have a lot of notice by which you could have brushed up on some of the basic principles of Asian politeness or something like that. Um, I I wish I could tell you it was that. I think I just was being very, it was prior to our conversion. And I just was like, this is what you do. You know, you're just very, very relevant. I was being relevant. (laughs) Well, and there's nothing wrong with that, especially if we have the awareness that we are going to be interacting with someone or a group of people from a different cultural context in which issues of politeness and manners may be central. And we see this, I think, in the life of Paul and his missionary work. You know, he certainly, when he began to interact exclusively or overwhelmingly among the Gentiles, you know, got to be aware of some of their habits and their customs. And um, his eating of certain of their foods, you know, was an example, I think, of his uh, attempting to conform or show politeness. You know, I can think of con- uh, situations that I've been in where I've been offered something to eat and uh, I ate it. <laughs> I'm just trying to remember whether I did the same. Oh, it was wonderful. And I, you know, looking for somewhere to spit it out. But, uh, you know, we, we do see this. It, it's an issue of being contextual. Some people don't like that word, but there is a true biblical form of it and there are corrupted, corrupted versions of it. But it comes back to the whole issue of Christ calling us to make the nations his disciples. and hitting people over the head and commanding them to 
become believers and follow God's law, that doesn't work. We have to get into a position to be able to talk to people and interact with them. And knowing something about their rules and manners, if it is something in a different cultural context, is an important part of that. But let me tell you where I think that there are two dangers in that position. Not that it's not accurate and that we shouldn't do it, but if we're not founded on solidly on a biblical foundation, we can take that perspective and go in the direction of, well, I won't tell somebody what I really think because that would offend him. And if that person is doing something that severely puts them under the judgment of God, and in an effort not to be impolite, you don't bring it up, then you're betraying the most important function you have in terms of dealing with other people, assuming that you believe that God blesses obedience and curses disobedience. Why would you want somebody to continue in disobedience just so that you don't have to be labeled as impolite? Yeah, and that's uh, that's an area where we have to walk that uh, fine line and be able to determine, okay, it's more important that we uphold God's standard in this circumstance as a means of helping someone understand that is not proper behavior as opposed to not wishing to offend someone, you know, for some larger purpose down the line. But let me clarify what I mean. Okay. Obviously, if you're in a group and let's take – abortion-minded people, or women who think that abortion is their right. Being outnumbered 30 to 1, maybe that's not the place in which you're going to be able to do the most good in terms of speaking to the issues of life. Isn't that what you might say isn't true, but is it going to evoke the kind of reaction that you would hope? Much better to if there are people who you perceive are struggling with this perspective and they've gone along with it, that your ability to speak into their lives the truth of God isn't trying to be done on this mass broadcast that you're like machine gunning them with this information, that your words might be much better received on a one-on-one basis. So I'm not suggesting that every Christian college student who finds himself or herself in a classroom that has a very atheistic, God-hating person that he's supposed to stand up or she's supposed to stand up and say, oh, no, professor, you're wrong. That would be a case where as the Spirit leads, if you're there for good reasons in the first place, then the Holy Spirit will guide you. But it shouldn't be under the guise of politeness that Christians do not uphold the truth of God's law. That was a point I was going to make precisely where, say, you are at a party or some neighborhood gathering and a discussion of something like abortion comes up or uh, homosexual marriage or whatever it may be. You know, you have to decide not so much am I going to compromise on this and let them get away with it, or is this the place for me to escalate this into an all-out, you know, verbal battle, as opposed to, you know, you just let it slide and then later on when they're, the, the person is off by themselves, or maybe even call them up or go by their house and say, look, I want to follow up with that discussion because uh, I think we, we need to talk further about that. And a perfect example of that is the case of Rosario Butterfield, who originally, I think, wrote a op-ed piece in her local paper about why homosexuals and lesbians should have certain rights. 
and a pastor contacted her and basically had a ongoing, I think it was for about a year, relationship. She wanted to talk. He was willing to talk. And eventually she came to see the truth of God's word as a result. And, and she calls it her train wreck with the Holy Spirit where she collided with truth. And since then, she has been a very vocal individual in terms of the truth of God's word having to do with sexuality. But she's not trying to go out and burn and torch whole cities. She does it by means of engaging people who want to hear her. Yeah, yeah, and that is, that is a perfect example of, like you said, of what we are, what I'm referring to there, and uh, and how that that worked out in that particular case. But I want to go back to the earlier point that uh, we had discussed relating to something that Dr. Rushduni had written about the uh, the central place of uh, manners and politeness in terms of helping maintain order and community in civilized society and how we have seen a continual downgrade over a period of decades in the society that all of us and most of our listeners, perhaps some from other cultures or other countries, would say the same thing for theirs. But at least in these United States, we have seen this on a mass scale to where things that are common in terms of how people interact with each other, you use the example of people calling each other, younger people calling older people by their first names, but we see things in ordinary day-to-day activities among people, whether it be how they drive, you know, how they interact in the store, uh, to especially in television. I think I mentioned in a previous broadcast how we, we saw coming into the early 20th century, especially in the area of entertainment, the, the rise of insulting, sarcastic comedy as the main vehicle for getting people to find situations humorous. And that was something very different than the kind of humor that existed prior to that time, uh, which was based on something a little different. Than that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not saying people have never found sarcasm and things like that uh, not humorous, but it has never been elevated to the point where the insult and uh, making fun of people and being, in other words, being impolite is the vehicle by which we are entertained. And uh, for people who have a, a collective memory enough to be able to, to put that in context, all you have to do is turn on just about any television program and <laughs> you'll, you'll see it. And we've gotten to a point, especially we see it in politics, where all you have to do is make fun of someone else, call them a pejorative term, and you somehow think you've won the argument. Let's not talk about what the person is bringing up. Let's make it about the person. And then because most people are so acclimated to that, they get diverted off the point. And so they don't end up really having a sense of what's right and wrong. It's who got the other guy, who was funnier, who who turned the phrase better. I think with the rise of modern media and television, you know, in the 1950s and 60s and onward, these things have become more focused and we can be more aware of them. I think particularly you mentioned politics. Uh, We can go back to something like the the Kennedy-Nixon debates uh, on television. Now, I don't know that there was any verbal impoliteness, but from what I've read, uh, the, and, and I didn't have a dog in that fight. I was too, uh, too young to vote back then. But I think I remember reading somewhere that the, uh, the TV studio, uh, some of Kennedy's folks made sure that the TV studio was very, very hot 
So Nixon was sweating profusely, <laughs> whereas Kennedy looked very suave and debonair. You know, uh, that, that's sort of an underhanded, impolite, dirty trick. To the most recent election cycle, to where, frankly, I was profoundly embarrassed and ashamed at the things I was seeing uh, on, on a national level, the kind of behavior that just 25 or 30 years ago would have been unthinkable on the part of public figures because it was such a profound manifestation of crudeness and impoliteness. Exactly. And so last time we talked about does life imitate art or does art imitate life, you see something enough, and if you as a believer do not question the underpinnings of it, it's very easy to come across with an idea that it's a neutral area. You know, it doesn't really matter because everybody knows it's just in jest. Well, first of all, not everybody knows. And secondly, it goes against the second commandment that says, treat others the way you would want to be treated. Most people do not want to be insulted, called an idiot or stupid or an ignoramus or whatever people throw in Christian circles in the area of debate. Let's talk about the ideas someone's putting forth rather than a negative comment about their looks or their attitudes or things like that. I think another way, too, um, if I can stay for a moment with the, the issue of the media, another way, too, that this whole thing has been turned upside down, so to speak. I remember a motion picture that was out uh, some years ago. I know the name of it, but I'm not going to mention it. Uh, about the, the whole premise was about this, this young woman who was living on the streets and was sort of a cutthroat drug addict, prostitute, something like that. And she was being recruited by some intelligence agency to become a killer assassin. And she certainly fit the aggressive part of the, the profile. But one of the things that they had to do to get her up and running in that, that role, they had to teach her social graces because she had none. And, and the whole movie, the first part of the movie, is about her being taught how to do certain things that would make her be able to interact with people in a very high society scale. And I remember the, the great actress Anne Bancroft had to teach her table manners and, and that sort of thing. But you see, the, the whole premise is, is that you are becoming polite and learning to interact with people so you can eventually kill somebody. You know, th this is the way uh, humanistic society you know, undercuts the value and the importance of these things. And let me bring up the other thing that I said there's a danger, and that is in putting people in a position where you're sort of inviting them to be deceptive or not true to what they believe because of the way in which you phrase the question. So let's say you're a doting grandmother who has given a present that you think is just marvelous to your grandson. And you say, do you just love what I got you? Now, <laughs> as soon as you put the question that way, he is between a rock and a hard place. Other than he absolutely loved it, and then in which case the answer, his yes would be yes, but let's say he didn't. Let's say it didn't fit. Let's say he thought it was babyish. Let's say it didn't work. Let's say he broke it after an hour, right? But he gives the polite answer. Well, we can't really fault him for not wanting to be impolite. I would fault the person who puts him in a position to have to do that. And I think too often adults can put children in that position and it can take the 
very, very ugly turn that when children then are victimized by someone who wants to take sexual advantage of them, the whole polite issue now rises to the surface because I don't want to upset the apple cart. I don't want to say to my mother that her brother, my uncle, did this to me because that's impolite. So we can't elevate politeness to the point that we have an undergirded why we would want to be polite and what things are not permissible and the whole concept of being polite or mannerly would be trumped by something else. And that's why in the area of protecting children from potential predators, you've got to start with the law of God. You've got to be training them in God's ways, in God's word, so that you can explain deviations. A very wise man once said that the most disadvantaged people in the world are those who continue to play the game of life with opponents who've long ago abandoned the rules. And the insight there, I think, for us and what we are talking about, is that the, the ultimate rules are, as we have said, God's law. Uh, the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God, and how those things are extrapolated and applied in personal, family, and civil society. If those things are absent, then you have just the, the shell, the outer frame of aspects of behavior that can lead to the very thing you're just talking about. And so, you know, we have to say that living in society, living in a family, living in a culture is a complicated business. And this is why the family is so very important as the first uh, training ground and school for children growing up to learn how to interact in society, and especially the way society in our country has become nowadays, it is a very complicated business uh, where there is so much deception and fraud and phoniness and where people are seeking leverage to either get more money from you or to try to wrangle you know, some immoral behavior out of you or your children or something like that. So we have to have a certain amount of shrewdness and a certain amount of wisdom to be able to determine okay, this looks like I might be being impolite if I say yes or no to this person or to that thing, but I know the bigger issue behind this is you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, and therefore, because of that, I've got to take this position or say this thing. And you talked about within families. This is a particular thing to the ladies. Do not ask your husband, does this make me look fat? (laughs) (laughs) Because there's no way for the guy to win, right? If you are concerned that it makes you look fat, then do something with the fact that you're carrying more weight than you wish. But putting somebody in a position to say, no, it doesn't make you look fat, and maybe it does, but he doesn't want to hurt your feelings, or maybe he doesn't think in those terms. My experience before I actually got this I'd say to my husband, does this look good? And he'd go, yeah, it looks fine. i go, no, it doesn't. And I would change my clothes. He says, well, why did you ask me? (laughs) Well, a lot of times people put other people in that position to make them feel good. Now, if you really want an honest answer, then start off with, I would like an honest answer. You can feel good about answering me, even though it might hurt my feelings. Yeah, that's an excellent point. You know, these are ways that we can unfairly put people in a position uh, to either violate rules of politeness or to give something less than an honest answer to something because, you know, we, we haven't 
treated them fairly from the beginning. We have shown a certain amount of uh, unmannerliness or impoliteness. Right. I do have one more funny story, and that is at one point we were involved in a homeschool co-op, and it was going to start in the fall, and I had just had my third child in June. And because I always liked dressing up nicely when I would be a teacher in a co-op setting, I had worked out specifically what outfit I was going to wear because I wanted to look professional, even though I hadn't fully lost all the weight that I hoped I would after having a baby. So we're getting ready to go, and the baby spits up all over me. And so now I have to go to plan B, and it worked. It wasn't everything I wanted. But it happened again, and now I'm in clothes that clearly don't fit me all that well. And I'm very upset, and I have a 13-year-old son, and I have a 7-year-old daughter. And I'm walking around the house going, oh, my gosh, I look terrible. This makes me look fat. And my son at that point is trying to be polite and is going, no, Mom, you're fine. And my daughter, who at 7 really didn't have the necessity to feel polite, looked at me and said, oh, yeah, it does. But mom, don't worry. All the best teachers are fat. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was really hard not to laugh at that point and just realize that most people probably weren't going to pay a whole lot of attention to me. But I got to see polite from the older one and honesty with the younger one. But she wasn't trying to be mean. She was just trying to you know, assure me that this wasn't a big issue for her. So we really want to make sure in our family situations, we're not encouraging an empty policy of politeness that our regard for others is based much more biblically than just quote-unquote social graces. Yes, and that is the the primary point. I mean, I mentioned the earlier the sort of stereotypical image that the uh, the southerner had as the, the polite person. The south was the polite part of the country. Other cultures, I mean, you mentioned the the gentleman who was Japanese, Courtesy is, is a, a well-known uh, Asian uh, trait, whether it be born from the teachings of Confucius or uh, whatever the tradition. Uh, so we know that things uh, you know, can be based, uh, politeness or manners can be based on many, many different things. But, you know, if I see the need to step aside and let someone go ahead of me in line, you know, I need to ask myself, what is my motivation for doing this? And if my motivation is something other than honoring the Lord in that process, then I should think about it. That doesn't mean you don't necessarily won't, you won't let the person go ahead of you. But some of this, it, it, at a certain level, must be so ingrained in us that it becomes reflexive and we don't have to think about it. Now, I want to mention an avenue or a field where I think this is a very, very serious problem in terms of where all politeness and manner just goes completely out the window, no pun intended, and that is on the highways and on the roads of our cities. And it is a remarkable example in our culture of where people have simply lost their minds, Uh, whether it be simply never turning on a turn signal to let somebody know that you're going this way or that, to thinking that you're getting to Starbucks in the next 15 minutes is more important than anybody's life, and so you've got to do 50 miles over the speed limit and weave in and out of traffic to get there. You know, these are examples of of a simple lack of a failure of politeness and restraint, and the quotes that we shared earlier uh, from Dr. Rastuni's writings that indicate the, the, the breakdown of 
biblical principles in a society. He says that um, to break the rules of mannerly discourse is a prelude to social violence and civil disorders. And I think he nails it right on the head with that statement. That's exactly what we're seeing in our culture today. And your point earlier that if it's not ingrained and we don't do it reflexively, if all that matters is me and I want to go left and I don't have to tell the guy behind me I'm going left, well, it does escalate into violence. And now we call it road rage. Yes. It started with people not outdoing the other person and showing honor. I mean, anytime my kids would really get into fighting with each other, that scripture was up on our refrigerator. And the question is, did you outdo your brother in showing honor? Did you outdo your sister? That kind of competition only ends up in a win-win situation because nobody's looking to further themselves over someone else. I had a real-life example of how something like this can work out just a few days ago. Uh, I was coming from my church down the the street that runs in front, and at the end of that street is a stop sign at which I turn right, and right on the corner is the post office where I check for the church mail. Well, I was at the stop sign, and there was a big pickup truck, you know, coming uh, from the other direction, and he had turned on his turn signal like he was going to turn right, so I pulled out to go ahead, and at that point, he turned off his turn signal. I thought, oh, no, I've cut in front of the guy. Well, I went on and parked at the post office, and so did he. And so we wound up walking in at the same time, and I thought, well, you don't usually have this kind of occasion where you've actually cut somebody off to say something to them. So I said, "I said, brother, I'm very sorry. I didn't really mean to cut you off. I thought you were turning there. He said, no, no. He said, I I saw that you had come out to the stop sign, so I was just going to go ahead and let you go. And I patted him on the shoulder. I said, well, listen, I will tell you this. Thank goodness you actually gave a turn signal, because most people don't anymore. (laughs) So. That's an example of where we can have civil discourse and politeness when those kind of opportunities uh, arise. We have to have this as a priority in our minds because as the Bible verses and scripture teachings that we have referred to earlier exhort us, we are in all things to serve and honor the Lord and have um, a good reputation among all people and certainly uh, behaving like uncivilized savages on the highways or in the uh, supermarket line is not a way that we honor the Lord. So if we're supposed to let our light shine before men so that they see our good works, we have to have the good works and we have to be willing to let our light shine. And I make a practice wherever I can. If somebody, for example, a clerk is about to give me too much money and I'll say, no, 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 you giving me $10 too much. And he says, oh, thank you very much. I said, well, you know what? I have to answer to God because you might not know it, but God would. And then usually I get this look like, um, okay. (laughs) Yeah. So so in other words, live it out and then let people know the foundation of why you're living it out. Yeah, that is a great example of how this whole issue of manners and politeness is an avenue for evangelism and the spread of God's kingdom. Well, Andrea, as we uh, wrap up this discussion, uh, we've, ranged far and wide over this topic. It is an interesting one, as I said at the beginning. Are there any resources that you wish to recommend our listeners? Well, Dr. Rush Dooney's The Institutes of Biblical Law, Volume 1, which will go through the particulars of each commandment, but Volume 2, which is more like a social commentary in terms of how the law plays out in society. 
the good part about volume two is you don't necessarily have to read it sequentially from the beginning to the end. You could look at the table of contents and say things like, hmm, what sort of things I'm interested in? And with volume one, you get an in-depth look at the implications of all the aspects of individual commandments. So I consider it a worthwhile effort. It's not an overnight effort, but it certainly will serve you in good stead as far as you can get into this subject and learn how to apply it. Both of those volumes and the third are resources that are worth having and keeping and referring to time and time again. I've referenced this, I've quoted this um, from this article several times already, and this is from the book Our Threatened Freedom, interestingly enough. Um, The title and subject matter of the book is not one that you might think uh, would have something relevant to our discussion, but there is a chapter seven in this book called Have We Lost Our Manners by Dr. Rushdoony. It's only two pages long, but he goes into this in, in a very uh, brief, lighthearted way, but he makes the points that I've largely shared with us. Uh, our Threatened Freedom Chapter 7 is a reference that I would uh, share with our listeners. And all that material that we just referenced is available for purchase, both in hard copy or in Kindle format, or to just actually read for at no charge online. And we'd like to encourage those who benefit not only from these broadcasts, but from the materials that are available at calcedon.edu to consider being part of those who underwrite the work of Calcedon that furthers the effort to share books, materials, lectures, and just conversations like this one to help people understand the reality that the Christian faith is a faith for all of life. With that, we will wrap up our Out of the Question podcast for this week, and we will look forward to being joined by our listeners next time. Uh, We would encourage you to communicate with us. We would love to have your, your thoughts, your input, or questions that you would like for us to interact with. And you can do that by sending us an email at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, visit www.kingdomdrivenfamily.com.